0: Is Matthew eighteen, twenty-one to thirty-five, where we will be working through the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now, this, this isn't a very easy parable. While there are some fantastic truths in here for us, there are also some, some very hard truths. As we work through the text this morning, I pray that each of us would be convicted of the forgiveness that we have withheld. And that we would each be overcome by the forgiveness that has been given to us. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. When that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. from your heart. That ends the reading this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So show of hands, how many baseball fans do we have with us this morning? We got a couple. We have got a couple that, that are that are into the baseball, that are following the baseball. It's I mean, it's a good time to be a baseball fan in this particular area, you know. I mean the Yankees, they've been doing very well. The Mets are totally surging right now, so they they're doing well too. It's a good time. Not a good time to be a Seattle fan, like we've just been real bad. Started out good, got Horrible. So, we have the future to look forward to in Seattle. Baseball was, was once known as the American pastime or America's game. I know some of us will probably argue that, but I'm sorry, guys. At this time, we've ceded that to, to football. Football is king of the sports at this point in time. You have to do some extra work to get up there with the baseball. I get it. It's all right. You know, what? that's okay. That's okay. But being America's pastime for so long, we've had quite a few influences. Like, there's been a lot of expressions and concepts today that baseball has influenced. Phrases like home run and curveball have infiltrated everyday expressions. If you do a great job with a presentation at work, you may be told that you knocked it out of the park, that you hit a home run. If someone does something that you don't expect them to do or say, you may say, man, I totally thought I knew where they were going with this, but they threw the curve, right? They threw the curve, and I I didn't see it coming. Whether you like sports or not, whether baseball is your thing or not, baseball lingo, baseball phrases have found their way into everyday life in such a way that we understand them, even if we don't necessarily understand the game or love the game that much. And though there are many phrases that are used, one phrase stands head and shoulders above the rest. Three strikes, and you're out. Any parents here this morning? We got any parents in the house? How many times have you counted to three in order to encourage your children to listen to your instruction? Right? All the times. All the times. (laughs) Freddie, get over here. And if you don't do it by the time I count to three, then you're going to wish you had. Though we would love for our children to respond the first time, we have this, this little element of grace built in where we let them mull over their obedience and weigh the risks and rewards before we assert our authority. I had a friend get fired one time, and even though he had messed up many times, his boss informed him that this last issue was the third strike. He's out. He's done. We've even seen it in video games. For the longest time, you had three lives in a game, three chances to reach your objective or it was game over. Now, sometimes you can earn extra lives, right? But, but three lives was the base. That was the standard for a very long time. Kids today, they got it easy. I mean, you got unlimited lives. Just go ahead. Continue to throw yourself with a particular obstacle. But when I was young, now I feel old, right? I guess that's how that comes across, I'm sure. Three lives, that was the standard. If you didn't do it in three lives, you were done. Now, I've, given, I've given baseball a lot of credit this morning, but the reality is the idea didn't originate with baseball. In fact, back in the Bible days, many of the rabbis taught that you had to forgive someone three times. So this idea didn't originate with baseball. It was was common practice even back in the days of the New Testament. And that sheds some light on what is going on in our text this morning. The disciples and Jesus, they're, they're hanging out. Jesus is doing his teaching. And then Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, teacher, if my brother... If my brother, my friend, or my enemy, somebody I know, sins against me, how many times am I obligated? How many times am I supposed to forgive him? How far does it go until I'm allowed to not forgive him anymore? Am I supposed to do it as many as seven times? Peter thinks he's being generous with the number seven. The common practice of the day is three. So Peter is doubling that and adding one. He's got to be looking at Jesus and going, man, look how well I am understanding this grace thing you've been teaching. Look how well I'm doing. I'm getting it, Jesus. I'm totally getting it. I'm putting it together. I'm grasping the concepts. Look how well I'm doing. Where's my cookie? Where's my cookie? I want a cookie. Now we understand, Peter. We get this idea of limiting pain in our lives. Of providing people with a limit for the amount of times that they are allowed to hurt us. And that limit, I mean really, it's on a sliding scale, right? Depending on the severity of the offense. If a person steps on your toes accidentally, you'll probably keep dancing with them for a little bit while, for a little longer. But if someone crashes your car... You're not going to let that person drive your car again. There are limits. There has to be limits. Right? How does Jesus respond to Peter's culturally gracious offer of forgiving his brother seven times? How does Jesus respond to our thoughts on limits? We read, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Times. I mean, we look at that and we go, whoa, 77 times. That seems like a lot, but okay. If that's what you say, Jesus, 77 times it is. And, and we just keep missing the point. We jump from seven. I mean, the jump from seven to, to 77 is it, more than we were anticipating. It's more than we're probably comfortable with. But we're semi-okay with it. Because there's still a limit. There's still a limit. There is still a line that once you've crossed, it allows us to bring the hammer. It allows us to bring judgment. When we think this way, we're just continuing to miss the point. Jesus isn't increasing the limit. He is destroying the limit. He's saying there is no limit to the amount of times that we should forgive our neighbor, our friends, our family, our enemy. And then he tells our parable this morning. There's a servant who owes his king a whole passel of dough. Owes him all the money. In our text, Jesus says it's 10,000 talents. Now that is a crazy number. And it's so big that it makes you wonder how in the world this servant was able to amass this particular debt. We're talking millions upon millions of dollars. Jesus takes the number totally, he makes the number totally outrageous on purpose for the point of his illustration. And when the servant is unable to pay this sum, which, no kidding, the sum's ridiculous for a servant. The verdict is that he shall be sold into slavery, he and all his family, to try to pay the debt. Now, they're being sold into slavery. That's not going to cover the debt that is owed. Nothing they can do will cover the debt. This is just the, the highest punishment that could be heaped on the servant in which the king gets to at least recoup a little bit of something of his investment. That's all this is. The king getting a little bit back. Not making amends for the debt, but just getting a little bit to help pay for the investment. And the servant freaks out. He falls to his knees and begs the king to have patience. I'll pay back everything, it promises. Just, just give me some time. Now the king and, and everyone in that room, everyone in that household, knows that it is impossible for this servant to pay back everything. He doesn't have the means. He doesn't have the opportunity. He just straight up doesn't have the ability to do it. He's making promises that he can't keep. How does the king respond? How does the king respond? He has mercy. He takes mercy on the servant. He gives him grace. He gives him mercy instead of judgment. And instead of selling him and his family into slavery, the king forgives the servant's debt. He says, hey man, I know that there is no way you could possibly repay this. And so because of my great mercy, because of my great love, I will forgive this debt. I will erase this debt from existence. It will be as if this debt never was. And we know what Jesus is talking about here in the parable, don't we? We know that we are the servant. But instead of a debt that consists of money, we have owed a debt of good works. Good works that we cannot perform, for we are sinful, broken people. And every day that we live, every breath that we breathe, we have added to this debt. And there's nothing that we can do to try and pay it back. There is nothing, there's nothing that we can do Not that we don't try. Oh, how society, logic, culture, they all tell us that we need to be this servant telling the king, I got you, I'll pay you back, I'll make it all up to you. But those in the know, we understand that this is not possible. Because our own, none of our our works are good. We cannot begin to dig ourselves out of a hole. All we do is dig a deeper hole. All we do is put our sin more on display. And in our sinfulness, we have kept God at a distance. Because of our sinfulness, He could not have the relationship with us that He longs to have. That He created us to have. With him. And since we couldn't fix that. There had to be someone to fix it. Since, since all we could do is dig deeper holes. God had to send someone to jump into the pit. Into the hole that we're digging and carry us out. And so he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to teach us. To lead us. He sent Jesus to turn our world upside down. To upset the fruit basket of faulty human understanding. But ultimately he, ultimately, he sent Jesus to pay the price for our debt of sin, to pay the price that we could not. And so Jesus died for us and in our place. And because of Jesus, we are forgiven. Because of Jesus, God looks at us and says, because of my great mercy, because of my great love, I forgive this debt. I will erase this debt from existence. So when I look at you, you Whom I love so much. It will be as if this debt never was. How insane is that? That's crazy. What kind of scandal do you think this debt being forgiven raised in the king's house? What? The other servant said, are you kidding me? You just let him off the hook for all of that debt. You got to be joking. You've got to be crazy. Think of the scandal of grace that is poured out on the server. This, This shouldn't happen. By logical standards, this isn't okay. It almost feels unfair. It doesn't seem right. Grace. Grace is scandalous. And this is what our God has done for us. He has poured out His grace on us. Our sin has been atoned for. Your sin has been paid for. Your sin is forgiven. And then our parable this morning, it takes a turn that maybe, you know, maybe we aren't quite so fond of. We love the part about our sin being forgiven. But the reality is that forgiven sinners, we we have a bit of a problem. You see, forgiven sinners are forgetful. Forgiven sinners are forgetful. We bask in the glory of our forgiveness. We raise our hands in praise and we fall to our knees in thankfulness as we are continually hit by the waves of grace that God washes over us that God bathes us in, but when it comes to those who have sinned against us, we have a tendency to become pretty forgetful. We forget the grace that we have been shown and focus on the wrong that has been done to us. It doesn't take us very long to put the umpire gear back on Settle in behind the plate and start counting strikes. Our servant in the parable this morning, so happy for the debt that has been forgiven him, leaves the throne room and goes and finds one of the other servants in the house. This fellow servant, we'll call him Frank, all right, call him Frank. Frank owes the forgiven servant about a gram. He owes him about a thousand dollars. You see, Frank has a gambling problem. And he got in trouble with his bookie and he didn't have the money to pay up. And so he hit up our forgiven servant for the excess. For the part of his debt that he couldn't pay. And now our forgiven servant is looking to settle the account. He asks Frank for what is owed him and Frank can't pay. He doesn't have the money yet. The forgiven servant knows that part of the reason he doesn't have the money is because Frank has a gambling problem. And instead of giving the forgiven servant what he is due, Frank has again gambled his excess money away. And the forgiven servant gets mad. He is mad that he is being wronged in this way, that Frank is being being irresponsible in this way. He's mad that Frank is being irresponsible with the grace that he has been given. man can I relate to that I feel it more in my parenting than anything I didn't punish you last time you jumped on the couch and here we are jumping again you're abusing the grace that I have given you or I let you play your games this afternoon even though you hit your brother and now you've got you hit him again What are you doing? What in the world? Again, you're abusing the grace that I have given you. And man, we struggle with this. We struggle with this a lot. So in both instances, we can understand the forgiven servant. We understand that grace is poured out on us the grace that God has given us through forgiveness, but we also understand the frustration and the anger when the grace that we give is abused, is taken advantage of. Well, this was strike three. The forgiven servant has Frank shown, thrown in jail because he can't repay the debt. And man, prison, prison is such an apt illustration the idea of withholding forgiveness. We feel like we are putting a person in jail. We are punishing them. We are withholding forgiveness in an effort to have some kind of power over them. There has to be some kind of punishment for what they did. But man, in so many cases, there is nothing that will really be able to make up for the hurt and loss that is done to us. Nothing can replace that which has been taken from us. Now, I'm not trying to make light of tragic events. But I am trying to focus a lens on the logic that we display in our loss. A drunk driver hits your son's car. There is nothing that will bring your son back. And though it may feel like a power move, like you are putting the driver in in prison by withholding forgiveness, your son is still gone. The result of sin in this world is still felt. We can apply this logic, though we may not like it, to many horrible circumstances that arrive at our door in life. The news has given us ample opportunity to see the sin that lives in the heart of man. And as I wrestle with this dilemma... This need to forgive and then recognizing that my refusal to forgive isn't, it's not setting anything right. I'm reminded of Corrie Ten Boom. Now I don't know if you're all familiar with Corrie Ten Boom, but she was a a Christian in Germany during World War II. Her family was caught smuggling and hiding Jews from the Secret Service and so she and her sister spent 10 months in a Nazi concentration camp. Her sister died there fifteen days before Corey was released. After the war, she wrote a book about her experiences called *The Hiding Place*. And man, I would encourage everyone to read that particular book. It's one of the most profound books on forgiveness that you will ever read. In the book, she describes her tru- her struggle, the struggle that ultimately led to her forgiveness of those responsible for the horrible and inhumane. Injustices that were inflicted upon her and her family. When describing this radical forgiveness, she writes, to forgive is to set a prisoner free only to discover that prisoner was you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free only to discover that prisoner was you. When we put someone in prison by refusing to forgive, what well, we don't realize is the person that we are imprisoning is ourselves. We need to learn, like Corey Ten Boom, that forgiveness and freedom—they live together. They're not mutually exclusive. They are inseparable. Jesus means for us to be free, and to be free, you must be forgiven, and to stay free, to stay out of this prison that we are so good at putting ourselves in. You must forgive. It's no coincidence that our forgiven servant this morning ends up in a cell. When the king hears that he wouldn't forgive Frank, the thousand dollar debt, he's enraged and he throws the forgiven but unforgiving. i say that again. He throws the forgiven but unforgiving servant in prison. So my question this morning is, what prisons are you living in? What prisons are you living in? Who are you struggling to forgive? Man, oh, how we long for justice. Oh, how we long for righteous punishment. Oh, how we long for judgment. But our desire for judgment is a dangerous thing. For judgment is the enemy of faith, for faith is delivered and sustained through grace, through mercy. As we judge and demand payment from one another, we fashion, we build a world not only skeptical of forgiveness, grace, and mercy, but also downright opposed to it. Jesus is telling us a story about what happens when forgetful sinners demand Justice. Judge not lest you build a machine that sets out to destroy the very essence of the kingdom of God. That essence is faith, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. As a church today, I do not think that our reputation is one of radical forgiveness. Often, instead, it is one of... Of radical judgment. For we forget how much we have been forgiven. Instead of judgment, let us embrace forgiveness. Let us stop counting strikes. Let us embrace the scandal of grace, not just for ourselves, but for our neighbor, our brother, our sister, our political rival, our enemy. Let us be reminded of the grace that the king showed the servant and his forgiveness of a debt that could not be repaid. And let us remember that we are that servant. Let us remember that in the purpose or the person and work of Jesus Christ, God has forgiven and justified the ungodly. All debts have been forgiven. The prison cell doors have been unlocked. Now, Just because you have forgiven someone, that doesn't mean you have to go camping with them. Right? But it means that you are no longer in the prison that you have constructed for yourself. And the king is calling us out of these prisons. And he is inviting us to sit at his table. He is calling us into the party. He is reminding us that mercy is mightier than judgment and freedom is rooted in forgiveness. This is the radical world that God wants us to live in, a world where judgment is stomped out by mercy. A world where mercy has been poured out on each of us through the forgiveness that we have been given Not that we have earned, not that we have earned, but that we have been given. What a fantastic and amazing God that we serve. Amen.